0: Children are a blessing from the Lord, not just because they're a gift, but because often they're a mirror. Uh, My wife and I have been married for 15 years. We have four children, 11, 9, 6, and 4, and one of them, I won't say which one, but one of them uh, has this... A leadership gift, shall we say. And so often I will come home and I will find that the living room has been transformed into an airport terminal. You know, the couch is this row of seats and furniture has been rearranged. And, like, the piano bench is now TSA security line. And I'm saying, what's going on here? You know, or their bedroom is all of a sudden a prairie house. And the imagination is amazing. But I think what's even more remarkable is how the other siblings just follow. They're like, yeah, well, well, this is what they said to do. We've got to do this. This is our game, and it's real. And I sometimes look at this child of ours, and I think, man, is this what I'm like? Always telling others what game we're playing, you know, what imaginative world we're in, and how to move along, and how to do this. The truth is, as pastors and leaders, we are always leading. We're almost always leading. I mean, you can't even go out to a meal with a group of friends, and it's time to say grace or something, and everyone kind of gets quiet and looks at you like, Pa- pastor, pastor, you know, or, or you go on a family vacation, you know, you're visiting your you know, parents or maybe your sisters, brother-in-laws, whatever, and, and it doesn't take long into the vacation before someone pulls you aside and it turns into this major heart-to-heart counseling session. You are almost always leading, right? This whole morning has been about how we can be faithful with our marriages and families, even with our own souls and hearts. And so to kind of conclude this little um, trajectory this morning, I want to talk about what it means to learn not to lead. How can we learn not to lead? Every seven years at New Life Church, every full-time employee is given a sabbatical. And it's meant to be a a gift to us, a place to help us with our rhythm, to slow down. Now, I, this summer, took my second sabbatical, which means I've just been hanging around here on staff for a really long time. I've been on staff at New Life for 16 years, and this summer was our second sabbatical. I think a sabbatical, in essence, a sabbatical is an exercise in learning not to lead. A sabbatical is an exercise in learning not to lead. The first sabbatical that I took was much more about a transition, moving from worship ministry into a teaching pastoral role. This time, though, it was purely about stopping, about resting, about disengaging. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, Glenn, if you're not leading, then what are you doing? What are we supposed to do? I've got to be productive. I've got to do something. And maybe because you are all so well-versed with sermons and Bible stories that you're probably going to fill in the blank with, I know what you're going to say. You're not supposed to be leading. We're supposed to be following, right? Right? No, I actually want to say something quite different than that. I want to say that instead of leading, part of the gift of a sabbatical rest is the gift of being fully present. There are two things we, I learned to be this summer in a very particular way. And the first was to be present. Phil and Holly alluded to this earlier this morning. But it is so easy to never be fully in one place, to never be fully there. So there's something I had to do. It was a, a seven-week sabbatical, and there was something I had to do. And that was to take this thing and turn it off. And put it in a drawer and not have it with me for the whole summer. I know, right? (laughs) Thank you. I mean, sometimes I say this to people and they're like, yeah, so, right? Uh, We had this other phone. It was technically a smartphone. But I got to be honest, it was not a very clever smartphone. Couldn't do much. But I used it basically just to make calls and to text. But it... It changed my morning rhythms. You know, the the morning rhythm where you wake up and your phone is your alarm anyways. You grab it to turn it off. And then you're like, well, maybe I'll also just scan Twitter real quick. I didn't do that. I didn't have the phone. So I would wake up. And all of a sudden I realized I am present to the Lord. When I awake, Psalm 139, I am still with you. And, I, and when I laid down to go to sleep, to be able to be present to my wife, we did a whole week where it was just my wife and I for a week. Thank you, Lord. And then we did time. Now, I don't want you to think that this was sort of monastic. I mean, I told you we have four kids, right? So the rest of our sabbatical was road trips and, you know, going to see, you know, sites and activities and all of that stuff. But the whole thing was being present to them. See, in order to be present to someone, you have to be absent to everyone else. In order to be present to someone, you've got to be willing to be absent to everyone else. So I was absent from a lot of important things this summer. This is some of the things I missed. I missed a major conversation, national conversation on social media about race relations and and, and protests. Things I care very much about. Things I wanted to speak into, I could not. I missed a lot of major conversations about the theology of church and worship. Things, these are not trivial things, understand. These are things that I have since been able to re-engage in. But in the summer, during my sabbatical, these were things that would have to wait. Because to be present to someone means being absent to everyone else. Often we talk about social media as a tool. I'd like to suggest to you that social media is not actually a tool, it's a space. It's a space, and so when you are present there, it means you are absent somewhere else. And it's helpful to think of it as a space, because then you can say, I'm at, hang on a minute, I'm going to go inhabit this space called Instagram for a bit. You know? And then I'm going to come out of that space, and I'm going to inhabit my own house again, right? But if you think of it as a tool, then we are multitasking, multitooling all the time. But if it's a space, then you realize, I have to be absent from that space in order to be present in this space. The second thing I learned that I had the opportunity to be was to be indifferent. Now when I say this, this sounds very odd because it almost sounds Buddhist, right? I mean, wait, wait a minute, Glenn. I know you grew up in Malaysia and there's a lot of other religions there, but this isn't Christian, right? This idea of detachment and being indifferent, actually. You know, and and maybe you think, well, Christians, we talk about passion, right? The passion of the Christ, the suffering of Christ, that to love is to be involved. That's true. And so in the one sense, there's a kind of indifference that we never want to have, right? The kind of apath- apathy. Uh. But there's a, I'd like to suggest today that there is a holy kind of indifference. A holy kind of indifference. Ignatius was a merchant and a warrior born in the late 1400s whose faith came alive at the age of 30. He was lying in bed recovering from a wound in battle, reading stories about Jesus and about great saints. And he felt this great desire well up in him when he would read these stories in such a way that he wanted to live to bring glory to God. Ignatius discovered he's one of the voices that has helped us discover that your desires are one of the ways that God speaks to you. Ignatius and his friends formed the Society of Jesus, the Friends of Jesus, also known today as the Jesuits. Ignatius wrote a document called the Spiritual Exercises, Ways to Contemplate God While Not Quitting Your Day Job. So there was Benedictine spirituality, which was much more monastic and had intensive rhythms during the day. Ignatius was the other way around. He's like, I'm a merchant. I'm a soldier. I want to find a way to contemplate God while working. And so his first principle in these spiritual exercises was to become indifferent to anything except that which leads to the will of God for your life. To become indifferent to anything except that which leads to the will of God in your life. It's what spiritual directors today call a kind of Ignatian indifference. It's an open-handedness. A way of saying, God, everything that you've placed in my hands... And we've already heard this alluded to this morning. Everything you've placed in my hands, I'm going to hold loosely. I'm going to hold loosely. I'm not going to grasp it. I'm not going to grab it. We have to believe that this church that we're leading is actually Jesus's church. We have to believe that we don't bring the kingdom. Jesus brings the kingdom. We have to believe that we aren't building the kingdom. We aren't even changing the world or making it. What we are doing is bearing witness that God is still at work in his world. That the creator God is also the redeemer God. And that our presence in the world is a faithful witness that God's still here. It, doesn't, it means we're not grasping to say, I've got to do that. I've got to make this happen. No, we don't. I think in an odd way, St. Peter had a sabbatical. Although, I must admit, it wasn't one that he chose. After the, the crucifixion, Peter ran away, went back to fishing. And Jesus, after the resurrection, finds him on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he comes to him, and we know this story as church leaders. You've probably preached sermons about this story, but years ago, a, couple, a few years ago, this story took on a different meaning for me. In that moment, that scene where Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Lord, you know... In that moment, and the most important word in Jesus' question to Peter was not the word love and all the different Greek words for love and the three different questions. The most important word in that question for me was the word me. Me. And it hit me one day because I've been at New Life for 16 years. We've walked through some stuff. And I was so grateful for the friends and the brothers and sisters and the leaders like Brady that have come alongside but I was sitting in a prayer meeting on a Sunday night, on my knees in worship and I felt the Lord ask me that question and the question was do you love me? See, if we're going to be faithful, it's not about do you love the church? He doesn't say to Peter, Peter, do you love these band of followers? Do you love the church? Peter, do you love my teachings? Pretty good sermons, weren't they? Do you love the food? Do you love the sheep? Do you love the calling? Do you love the purpose? The first time Jesus called Peter, he called him to be a fisher of men. It was all about purpose. But I want to say to you that the calling about, that was all about purpose was not strong enough to sustain Peter. The first call that Peter experienced was about purpose. The second call that Peter receives is about a person. And I want to say to us this morning, the only way we can last is when we love Jesus more than anything else. More than the work, more than the call, more than the city, more than the food, more than the Bible, more than the teaching, more than our friends or the staff. But Jesus. And my question to us this morning as we wrap this time is to say, have you ever stopped long enough to be present, to become indifferent to everything else except the face of your Savior, Jesus? Amen.